I can remember when I was growing up, there would be certain occasions where I would find myself crying. Sometimes it was when I got a report card and I knew I would have to show it to my parents. Some, that was self-pity. <laughs> Sometimes I would cry because I was tired. And, and those of us who are parents know what happens when it gets to meltdown time. You know, it's like there's nothing you can do, you know, and, and kids cry. Sometimes I would cry uh, out of manipulation because I didn't get what I wanted. So I thought if I cried and kept crying and crying, I would finally get what my want, I wanted. So my mother used to have this great saying. She would say, if you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> yeah. You know. Now, I didn't use those specific lines of my kids. I was a little more sarcastic when they would be crying. I'd say, are you feeling sorry for the kids who are starving in Africa today? You know, uh, but my sense is all of us as parents, if you're a parent, have had moments where you just like to say to your kids, would you knock it off and save it, you know, save those tears for something that's really worth crying about. Now, by the way, I'm not against crying. In fact, I believe that a lack of the ability to cry probably suggests something that's more wrong with you, you know. It may mean, as one counselor says, that you're emotionally constipated. You know. Now, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Bible commands that we cry. Look at James 4 in your study notes. James is dealing with the topic of sin here. And he says, let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. And I hope you hear what James is saying. It's inappropriate when there's sin in your life to be joyful. You ought to be weeping over it. Because you're estranged from your Heavenly Father. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, the Apostle Paul says this, Rejoice with those who rejoice in what? Weep with those who weep. Jesus is even described in the Scriptures. We read it last week as we close the service in Isaiah 53. He was described as a man of sorrows. And I knew this growing up because one of the first Bible verses I ever memorized was John 11:35, And the reason I memorized it is I heard it was the shortest verse in the Bible. And it simply says this, Jesus wept. So look at Luke 19 there in your study notes. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And when he gets to the edge of the city, he begins to weep over it. He's not just weeping for the city. He's weeping for the people that are in the city. Because of their rejection of the Messiah. So... Let me ask you, when's the last time you had a good cry over something that was worth crying about? Jeremiah sometimes is referred to as the weeping prophet. He's the guy that we're going to be looking at today. Now, in your reading this week, we looked at a lot of Manasseh and, and Ezekiel and stuff like that. I'm just going to focus specifically on Jeremiah this morning. In fact, Jeremiah wrote uh, another Old Testament book called Lamentations. It's actually... Five funeral songs about the destruction of Jerusalem that takes place. He writes about his discouragement and the grief that he feels. He talks about the humiliation and the loss and the pain of the destruction of Jerusalem. And he talks about the persecution and the suffering that the people are experiencing. Lamentation is one of the books that... On a weekly basis, the very devout Jews in, in Israel, when they're at the Wailing Wall, what they will do, and if you've ever been there, you'll see them rocking back and forth, and they'll have their Bibles open, and what they're doing is reading the book of Lamentations. They're mourning, they're grieving over the loss of Jerusalem and the loss of the temple. So, I'll tell you what, Jeremiah, I like him. 
Uh, he's not a crybaby by nature, necessarily, but he had a good reason to cry, and I want to give you a few of them today. We could spend weeks talking about this, but, but Jeremiah wasn't just some hopeless melancholic who just, you know, they always say you see the silver lining in the dark cloud, you know. He seems like the guy who saw the dark cloud in the silver, in the silver lining. Uh, but he's transparent. His, his personal lives and his struggles are known to a greater depth and a greater detail than any of the other prophets that we'll study. And in order to learn all these details, I hope you'll read through the whole book of Jeremiah, 52 chapters. By the way, it's the longest book in the Bible, word for word, uh, in terms of Jeremiah's writing. But at the end of it, you'll really feel like you know this guy in depth. He uses poetry. Biblical scholars say that... Uh, it, you know, the Hebrew language uh, is kind of lyrical, and, and he loved a good play on words. Jeremiah used alliteration. In fact, Lamentations is the only book in the Bible where it's an acrostic in many of the chapters. For example, in chapters 1, 2, and 4, he takes all 24 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and he starts each sentence off of that in an acrostic type of way. Jeremiah loved drama. He was the Dave McNeil of his day. He loved to, to, to act out his message. And he understood the power of a visual aid. On one occasion, he was trying to demonstrate to the people of Jerusalem that, that uh, if they didn't change their way, that they were going to come under God's judgment. And they just weren't getting the picture and of how devastating this was going to be to them. And so Jeremiah went down to the local pottery store, and he bought a clay pot, and then he took a sledgehammer, and he just shattered that thing to pieces. And then he said, this is what's going to happen to our nation if we don't turn it around. And Jeremiah's message was not just for a nation. Uh, it was for individuals as well. But as a nation, just like our nation, founded on biblical principles, a nation that trusted God, a nation that then wandered from its convictions. And so in order to demonstrate that God was going to use some superpower, it happened to be Babylon, to come in and to discipline Israel... And then to deport them as slaves to another country, Jeremiah put a, a, an oxen yoke over his head and he fastened himself to it. And he walked around the city streets of Jerusalem, really drawing attention to this fact in order to get people's attention. So he was a man who felt things deeply and he commuted, communicated with a dramatic flair. And he was a guy who wasn't so macho that he couldn't cry on occasion if, if there was really something worth crying about. So what could that be? Well, I just want to take a couple of minutes to suggest four things to you this morning. Number one, Jeremiah wept about the destructive consequences of sin. You know, a little history here. Jeremiah was one of the last remaining prophets in Judah. And remember, Judah is the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom. We learned last week the ten tribes to the north have been taken over by Assyria. I think it's about a 120-year period from the time that Assyria took over the northern kingdom till Babylon took over Judah and Jerusalem, the capital of Judah in the southern kingdom. So this Babylon comes in and it just mops up. And Nate talked last week about how when foreign countries would come in and take you, they would just deport you to, to a different place because they... They, they would bring some of their people in and, and take that. But, but Jerusalem was really devastated. Temple was destroyed. The walls were destroyed. The only people that they left in Jerusalem were really the poor. They took the well-educated and, and uh, the, the, those who were successful in, in other things. In fact, even the handsome ones, it says in Daniel, they took the handsome ones. 
and they brought them over to the Babylonian uh, region. Jeremiah began his public ministry when Assyria had taken the north, so he's watching things going on in the north. And Assyria was putting pressure on Judah, but eventually it was Babylon that came in and destroyed Jerusalem, the capital city. But Jeremiah knew that God was already beginning the judgment on the southern kingdom. And it was a judgment because of their sin. Things like idolatry. And if you think that we don't commit that sin, basically idolatry is when you worship other things instead of God. Karen mentioned it a minute ago. Idolatry is when we live by other priorities. Idolatry is when we put other things in first place in our life instead of Him. Also, there was sexual immorality that was rampant in that land at the time. There was unethical business practices and people were getting cheated out of their life savings. And you can go on and on. Sounds a lot like the 21st century, doesn't it? So Jeremiah has been watching all of this happen. And he sees not only the natural consequences that happen because of people's sin, but he knows that ultimately the sin was going to bring God's judgment. And that causes him to weep. And as he thinks about this enemy army coming in and bringing God's judgment onto the, the nation, he breaks down and he cries. And look at chapter 4 there on page 525. Pick it up at verse 19. Oh, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony with, of my heart. My heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent. For I've heard the sound of the trumpet, I've heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster, the whole land lies in ruin. In an instant my tents are destroyed, my shelter in a moment. How long must I see the battle standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? And then God says to Jeremiah, verse 22, My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil, and they know not how to do good. Turn over to chapter 9. We'll look at the first three verses there. It's on page 530. And this will give you an idea of why he was called the weeping prophet. Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a lodging place for travelers, so that I might leave my people and go away from them. For, for all, they are all adulterers, a crowd of unfaithful people. And then God says in verse 3, They make ready their tongue like a bow to shoot lies. It is not by truth that they triumph in the land. They go from one sin to another. They do not acknowledge me, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah looks around at all this, the destructive consequences of sin, in fact, he says, and I, I might have put this in your study notes, uh, chapter 8, verse 21. Since my people are crushed, I am crushed. I mourn and horror grips me. And I didn't put the very next verse. It says, is there a bomb in Gilead? Remember the old Negro spiritual? There is a bomb in Gilead that makes the sin sick whole. And so he cries out, isn't there a bomb? Because he's, he's just so troubled by this. Sometimes I'm entertained by sin, to be honest with you. I read about the lifestyles of certain celebrities. Sometimes sin provides great gossip, doesn't it? 
you know, she's cheating on her husband or his, he's struggling with alcohol or they're fighting with their best friends or they've gotten themselves into debt. It doesn't really break my heart. It just makes interesting conversation. Friends, when we see what sin does in people's lives, Jeremiah says it ought to bring a tear. And whether we're talking about national sins like abortion or pornography or racism, or we're talking about that addictive sin that just seems to dog the steps of a family member or a close friend or even yourself, it ought to bring a tear to our eyes. Sin is something worth crying about. The second thing that's closely related to this is that it's the hardness of people's hearts. I mean, how would you like to have been Jeremiah? He's been given the job of warning people about the coming discipline or, or punishment of God. He didn't have a very happy message. I'm sure he wasn't invited to very many parties. And, and if that wasn't bad enough, God told him right at the outset of your ministry, hey, people aren't going to listen to you. Look at your study notes, Jeremiah 7.27. <laughs> when you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. I got thinking about this as I was preparing the message for this week, and I thought, what if God told me, Bill, just keep preaching at Water's Edge every week, but by the way, nobody's going to listen, nobody's going to pay any attention to you. You know. On one occasion, Jeremiah writes his message from God on a scroll, and he sends it to the king. And one of the king's aides unrolls a scroll and begins to read this message from the Lord to the king. And as he's reading it, the king, who's kind of passe... He takes out a knife, and each time the scroll gets unrolled a little further, when he's done reading, he takes his knife and he slices it and he throws it into the fire. And he keeps cutting it off until the whole scroll has been thrown into the fire. I mean, you talk about intimidation. What do you think Jeremiah did? He went and he recorded a whole new scroll and he sent it back to the king. You know. I don't know if you've ever been encountered or encountered the hardness of, of heart when you're sharing the good news about Christ with someone who's spiritually lost. I don't have time to tell you a lot of my stories, but sometimes I just want to grab people by the shoulders and say, wake up. But there's other times I could just cry. You know, because I understand what's at stake. And I'm glad to know that I'm not alone in this frustration. Jeremiah had that frustration too. People that he loved and cared about, he wanted to see them follow God, and they just weren't. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus is at the edge of Jerusalem. And he's coming to the city for what he knows will be his final week before he's crucified. And he says there in in Matthew 23, 37, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I wanted to gather gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. In other words, your hearts were hard. I hope you sense the grief in Jesus' tone of voice here. Or how about from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 2. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Paul wanted so desperately to reach people with the good news of Christ, he says it just tears me up inside. I could wish that I would be spiritually lost in order that they might be saved. And you know, at Water's Edge, we do claim to be a church that has a passion for spiritually lost people. 
a church that invites people who are investigating the faith. We're up for people who are trying to make sense of what they need to do to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But to the extent of our success will determine how much we really grieve, I think, for lost people. One of my favorite psalms is in Psalm 126. Listen to these words from verse 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Ever wonder where they get that song, bringing in the sheaves, bringing the sheaves? You know, you see those old westerns with the white frame house and that, or church, and that's usually what they're singing. I always thought it was bringing in the cheese. <laughs> but it's sheaves, you know. And that's a reflection of this song, this psalm. We, we studied that when um, Joanne preached on Ruth last fall when they would cut, the sickle would cut down the wheat and then they would leave some of it for the poor to come. And they would pick up the, 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 uh, the wheat and it would have that thick, but, but the sheave is just one handful of wheat. That's what a sheave is. But you'd have to bundle a whole bunch of those things in order to get that much wheat. And after bundling them, they put it on a cart or something and take it off. He's talking here about the, the sheave, the, the bringing in of people who don't know Christ. And I think that there's a message here about how we convey the good news about Christ to others. When we go out with seed in our hands, sowing in tears, when we're truly broken up about the lostness or the hardness of people's hearts, I think as God gives grace, the, the gospel is able to penetrate their hardness, and people are brought by the Spirit into a personal relationship with the Savior. And friends, hardness of heart isn't always reserved for lost people. You know, sometimes it's going on in the lives of believers. I'll tell you, this is a frustration that Jeremiah faced during his day. He's addressing, for the most part, professing believers, and they're guilty of all kinds of sin, and yet they were oblivious to God's coming judgment. And the reason was because they reasoned this way. Wait a minute, Jeremiah, you don't understand. God can't judge us. He can't discipline us because we're, we live in the land where the temple is. And when you think about it, when you see all the ravages that are going on in the northern kingdom and those ten tribes get completely wiped out and you're still standing, you think, man, God's on our side. You know, We'll just offer up sacrifices, kind of throw a bone to God. You know, We'll keep them happy. Every week, you know, we go up on the Sabbath and we offer a sacrifice and you know, we'll just kind of keep God off our backs that way. I don't know if you've ever run into believers like that. They think that God can be bought. They think that God doesn't really care. They, they think that we can continue with the hardness of heart. I had a sense this week when I was preparing this message, too, that I have a friend who I've known for a long time. He's a professing Christ follower, and he's got sinful pattern in his life. And there's this hardness in his heart. And, and my response over time has been one of disgust. It's one of irritation. Probably there's a little pride in there that somehow, you know, I'm condescendingly above him and I, 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 I know that that's just part of my human nature sometime. Uh, there's a part of me that doesn't want to be bothered with him. But God says that sort of hardness of heart that you see in him, Bill, 
that ought to melt your heart. It shouldn't make your heart hard. What's worth crying about? Well, it's the destructive consequences of sin, and it's the hardness of people's hearts. And then the third thing is it's the loneliness of commitment. You know, to say that Jeremiah was a lone voice of the Lord in his day is no exaggeration. There are several factors that contributed to to Jeremiah's loneliness and his isolation. First of all, he wasn't the only prophet at the time uh, in Judah. You'd think that he would enjoy the company of his colleagues, but he's the only prophet that has bad news. You know, he was predicting that God's coming judgment and, and he's saying, you know, we're going to be taken off into captivity. We're going to be in Babylon. It's going to be a 70 year period, uh, before you'll be able to return to your homeland. Now in Judah at the time, there was a lot of false prophets as well. And they were the forerunners of today's, uh, politicians. Because what they do is they take polls to see what people were thinking and what they wanted to hear. And then what they would do is they would say what they wanted the people to hear. It's not going to be 70 years and God will make everything better. And it's not going to take repentance on your part and on and on and on. Well, who do you think the people wanted to listen to? If you've got one weatherman who says, listen, get your snow shovels ready. But all the other weathermen are saying, hey, clear and balmy. Which one do you want to listen to? You know, so there's here's one guy making a bad prediction and they're saying, what's the problem with you? To make matters worse, Jeremiah wasn't only alienated from his fellow prophets. He was somewhat turned off by the entire population of Judah. Jeremiah knew this because of the sins of the people, that the siege was coming from Babylon and that it was inevitable. And he said, the smartest thing we can do is just surrender now. We might as well just put ourselves under God's chastisement. Get, we might as well get it over with, and then we can get on with it. Well, you say that, and people brand you as a traitor. What do you mean? We're going to fight. you know? And so he wasn't a popular guy with his colleagues or his friends. And uh, listen to what God told him. Turn to page uh, 536, Jeremiah 16.1. God gave him a divine edict about even having a family. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me. You must not marry and have sons and daughters in this place, for this is what the Lord says about the sons and daughters born in this land, and about the women who are their mothers and the men who are their fathers. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried, but they will be like dung lying on the ground. They will perish by sword and famine, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. Not a pretty picture. One other contributor to his loneliness is that when Jeremiah began his ministry, he was friends with the king. And this was one of those rare, righteous kings in the land of Judah. His name was Josiah. And Josiah was renowned because he had renounced the idolatry of his father and his grandfather. He was actually a great king. He was trying to get Israel in the right direction. And while he was doing that, he discovered a copy of the scriptures which had been lost for many years. So he dusts it off and he begins reading in public places the scripture. And for a time it has an impact on the spiritual direction of Judah. And, and uh, so when, when, when Jeremiah is starting his ministry, he found a kindred spirit in King Josiah. Somebody whose heart beat with his. But then tragedy struck. Egypt came up from the south and they were going to attack Judah. And so Josiah went out with his army to fight in battle and he was killed. And now Jeremiah lost not only a friend, but he also lost 
a like-minded, fully devoted follower of God. Do you know what it feels like to lose somebody like that? People who are sold out to following God are hard to come by. Men and women who just ignite that passion in you. you know, there's some, there, I, or there, I think there's nothing more invigorated in my life than those few friends who I've been involved in ministry with, shoulder to shoulder, who are fully devoted followers. Men and women, and there's nothing more disheartening than feeling like you're the only one who's struggling alone. Jesus knew that feeling. Even though he was surrounded by 12 disciples... In the end, look at Matthew 9, 36. Jesus encounters a big crowd there, and he just wants to minister to their needs. He feels compassion for them, and he tells his disciples to pray. But you know what he told them to pray for? He said, don't pray for the needs of the people. He knows the needs of the people are so vast that the real desperate need of the occasion is additional workers. And he says, pray that God will send more workers out into the harvest field. Just one other aspect of this loneliness I just want to mention this morning has to do with those of you who are the only Christ follower in your family. You may be the only Christ follower at your workplace. You may be, if you're a student, the only Christ follower in your class or school. You may be the only Christ follower among your close friends. And sometimes it's just plain tough to stand alone, isn't it? You come here on Sunday morning and you're surrounded by fellow Christians. and It doesn't take away the pain of following alone sometimes, does it? I just want to remind you that God understands when you shed tears over the loneliness of walking solo for Christ, He also promises that He will give you an increased sense of His presence. You should read Lamentations. And when you go through Lamentations and read those five funeral things, you should underline all the verses that have to do with hope and promise. Finally, there's a fourth thing about worth crying about, and we'll, we'll wrap this up here. It's that constant, relentless attack of the opposition. I mean, it would have been bad enough if, if they just left Jeremiah alone. But those who opposed his message from God, they pressed in and attacked him. And I could spend the rest of the day telling you how badly Jeremiah got it. He was flogged. He was put in public stocks. He was, life was threatened. He was thrown in prison. In fact, when this book ends, he's under house arrest. And in case you think Jeremiah was some type of superhero and he went through the whole ordeal with a smile on his face, let me just read you Jeremiah 15, verse 10. I put it there in your study notes. And then I said, What sorrow is mine, my mother? Oh, that I had died at birth. I am hated everywhere I go. I am neither a lender who threatens to foreclose nor a borrower who refuses to pay, yet they all curse me. It seemed like the whole world was against him. Now, fortunately, in the midst of one of these wailing prayers, Jeremiah reminds himself that God is ultimately in control of the situation. And that's what gets him through facing all this constant opposition that he faced. Now, not many of us go through this kind of oppression. I'm pretty sure of it. But there is an adversary, and I think too often we forget about it. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6, he says, We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but our struggle is against the rulers and against the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And it's not that we're talking about a demon behind every bush. That's not what I mean. But there is a spiritual battle that is going on constantly. And I don't know if you ever get tired of the relentlessness of the spiritual enemy in your life.
Do you ever get worn down by the constant temptations that you have to face? Do you ever feel like you're constantly being tried? Are there constant decisions that are forced to make about priorities in your life? Or that constant struggle to maintain the spiritual disciplines in your life? Or that constant hassle of having to live in a fallen world? Do you ever feel like you're hitting the wall? Tired of falling into the same areas of sin? Do you ever get tired of the attacks of the evil one? Jeremiah had every right to weep. And there would have been something wrong with him if he hadn't wept. And I just suggest that there's something wrong with us if we're not deeply pained about the ravages of sin, about the hardness of people's hearts, about the loneliness of commitment, and about the constant attack of the opposition. So what's the benefit of crying? Well, first of all, it's cathartic. It's a way of getting it out of our system. But secondly, I think when we grieve over something, it reminds us that we need to depend on the Lord Jesus. As I thought about this, I realized that the tears often can teach us to long for heaven. I've seen this a lot in, in older people as I've been a pastor and I've been with them. Is that there's, there's an increased desire in the midst of their suffering for, for heaven. You know, it's interesting because in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of Jeremiah's imagery that is used in the book of Revelation. And it's the final time when God is going to set up a new heaven and a new earth under the rule of Jesus. And, and look at this last verse there in Revelation 21, verse 3. The Apostle John writes, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And until that happens, there are some things that are worth crying about. So I hope that your tears might remind you of the joy that awaits you in the presence of Christ. Let's pray. And let me just give you a moment as we bow in God's presence. I'm going to ask you the same question I began my sermon with. When's the last time you had a good cry over something that was worth crying about? And if it's been a while, then right now might be a good time to repent of some hardness in your own heart. And you could say, God, make me sensitive to the things that grieve you. And Heavenly Father, I just pray that we would be people who are marked by the joy of the Holy Spirit because that's part of the fruit of your presence in our lives. But I also pray that we'd be people who are quick to shed tears over things that grieve your heart, quick to weep with those who weep, quick to mourn over our sin. Jesus, you said, blessed are those who mourn, who are truly are sorrowful, blessed are they. It seems like a contradiction in terms, but Father, teach us today the worthwhileness of grieving in the right way. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.